How many of you know what circumcision is? <laughs> if you're not, now, if you're not if you're not that familiar, um, I've got a couple diagrams I put on the screen. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I'll have Jenny explain it to you, or, or Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Now, if if you are curious about the physical particulars of circumcision, feel free to ask one of these doctors in the room or some other medical professional. Don't ask me. Um, now, if you are, <laughs> yeah, ask your father. Now, if you are curious about the spiritual particulars of circumcision, though, I'd much rather try to explain that side of things. And I'm not going to go into all that though in our time together. But I do think it would be good just to have a quick introduction to it so that we can understand in our text here in Acts chapter 11 why it's so important. About 4,000 years ago, we read this a few minutes ago from Acts 17, about 4,000 years ago, somewhere around 2000 BC, God called Abraham away from his family and his homeland to another land hundreds of miles away. He said, I'm going to bless you and make a great nation out of you. And even in Acts 17, he said, I'm going to make nations from you. And he did that. So I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless you and all the families of the earth through your offspring. And a few later, God gave Abraham a sign of this promise. Every male born to Abraham's family and in his household was to be circumcised. It was a physical act meant to signify a spiritual truth, a spiritual reality. And Abraham's family turned into the nation of Israel. So all those who belonged to and were a part of Israel had their males circumcised. If you weren't circumcised, then you weren't a part of Israel. Over time, the Israelites became proud. They viewed everyone else as inferior. They viewed God's blessing upon them as if he were partial to them above and beyond every other nation. This view was inaccurate. God cared for all the nations. God blessed Israel so that she would be a blessing to everyone else. So that Israel would shine as a light, proclaiming the truth of the creator God and the necessity of faith in him for salvation from sin. And this is exactly what Jesus proclaimed. Believe in me. No matter who you are or what nation you're from or what your background is, and my grace is upon you. But the staunch right-wingers of Jesus' day disagreed to the point of killing him. And then, as the church was born, there were many Jews who still insisted that Israel was the only good and proper and true way to go. That you had to become a Jew an adopted Israelite, in order to receive faith and forgiveness of sins and to be welcomed into this new community of faith. The way that you became a Jew initially was to be circumcised. So there were many in the early church who held this false view that circumcision was a necessary act to become a legitimate Christian. They formed their own group inside the church and were called the circumcision party. But what we're going to quickly see in our text is that God is not partial. He is not a part of your party. He is not partial to your party. He does not require circumcision to become a Christian because he is gracious to all nations. He has called his disciples 
to go and make disciples of all nations, not to go and make all nations Jewish. So as we continue our study of the book of Acts, let's read today's text from the first half, Acts chapter 11. We're reading and looking at verses 1 through 18. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1, I'll read through verse 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout, the, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God is gracious, not partial. That's about our, going to be our only point today. God is gracious, not partial. He is not partial to you because you are white. He is not partial to you because you are middle class. He is not partial to you because you have proven yourself. He is not partial to you because you are a man. He is not partial to you because your parents are still married. He's not partial to you because you're an American. He's not partial to you because you're a Republican. He's not partial to you because you do not drink. He's not partial to you because you're a Baptist. He's not partial to you because you've never been divorced. He's not partial to you because you've raised your kids to be successful. He's not partial to you because you have a job. He's not partial to you because you have controlled your addiction. He is not partial to you because you dress well. He is not partial to you because you tithe. He is not partial to you because you go to church. He is not partial to you because you are a good athlete. He is not partial to you because you are book smart. He is not partial to you because you are in college or graduated from one. He is not partial to you because you own a business. He is not partial to you because you are a friendly person. He's not partial to you because you're organized. He is not partial to you because you got married and then had kids. He is not partial to you because you have a good paying job. He is not partial to you because you recycle. He is not partial to you because you serve at the food pantry. He is not partial to you because you believe hard enough. He is not partial to you because you believe in yourself. He is not partial to you. He is not partial to you 
He is not partial to you. He is gracious to you. He has been gracious to you. He will be gracious to you. Not because of you, but because of him. That is who God is. He is gracious and he is merciful. So when you are prone to fix your eyes on yourself, call a timeout, a mental health check. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Stop there in that moment and put your focus back on Jesus. Remember the cross of Christ. Remind yourself of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus through his sacrifice on the cross for his glory and for your good. I don't know what party you're in or who you identify with. It doesn't phase God and it is inconsequential. You can be on team feminism or team Democrat or team feed the hungry or team religious freedom or team medical missions or team local church or team traditional music or team Presbyterian or team hunting or team recycle or team military or team America or team friendship. Those identities that we possess or that have shaped us or consumed us or that we are sympathetic toward simply have no bearing on the most important identity that ought to define our lives in the midst of any or all of those pursuits. Is your identity rooted in Christ? Is Christ your identity? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul wrote an entire letter on this topic that we read in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now, you're not going to find Cornelius' name in the book of Galatians. But you're going to find this whole idea there for six chapters. And this letter is what we have preserved for us as that letter to the Galatians. For in Christ Jesus, he says, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Look, we didn't start this church because we thought we had all the answers that nobody else had. We started this church because there were plenty of people in our lives who do not know Christ and plenty of people in this community who do not know Christ. And those people weren't going to be reached and weren't being reached through the conventional means being deployed, as it were, in the established churches here in Abingdon. And there are a myriad of reasons for that. Some churches are just simply content to do what they've always done. Some churches are just simply content to exist for themselves. Some churches just have awful theology, and I don't think God wants to bless that sometimes. Some churches are discontent and dysfunctional and are only in pursuit of keeping the lights on. Some churches reach out to the community in evangelism but don't disciple converts. Some churches disciple but somehow neglect to disciple people to become disciple makers through evangelism. Some churches put on a good production. Some churches care about missions around the world, but don't understand how to live missionally here at home. Some churches want everyone to speak in tongues, but don't want to be honest about sound theology. Some churches put a premium on traditions and liturgy, but leave evangelism and discipleship in the background. Some churches 
meet in other churches' buildings but don't have much to show for their efforts. Look, and I think we need to be honest here. We've just become, in many ways, another church doing the same old things the same old ways. We've gotten into a groove that's really just a rut. We're in a pattern that isn't really producing results and doesn't seem to really be making an impact on our community. And maybe I'm not being fully fair, but there's also a chance that I'm not being harsh enough in that assessment. No matter which way any of us cut the cake, the fact of the matter is that we as a whole, our church overall, doesn't seem to be making an impact that legitimizes our existence. Could we, as separate families and individuals, still have the same impact as individuals and as families that we are currently having without the existence of our weekly services, without the existence of a separate organization known as the Vine Church. Because some of what this text in Acts 10 and 11 is trying to communicate to us is that we ought to lay aside what has seemed right to us for a time and grab onto where the Spirit of God is truly moving. That we ought to stop going through the motions and start asking why it is that we need to exist separately from all of the other churches in the area. Our text here in Acts 11, at least one of the main ideas is that there ought to be a unity in the body of Christ that reaches beyond preferences and backgrounds and preconceived notions and tribal affiliations. I am not suggesting that we throw out truth. I am not suggesting that we neglect evangelism. I am not suggesting that we neglect discipleship. I am not suggesting that we neglect missional living. I am not suggesting that we stop proclaiming the gospel and building each other up in community and sending each other out on mission. I am asking whether the kingdom of God would be better served if the fiefdom of the vine church were to no longer exist on its own ways, no longer insist on its own ways, and instead view unity with others in this community as more important and more Christ-honoring than preserving its own existence. We do not need to manipulate God into producing for us what amounts to man-made results and justifiable metrics. And I don't think we've done that, and we have no plans to try to do that. The number of baptisms and number of members and number of those in attendance at our services are not what justify our existence. But the lack thereof in those categories ought to suggest to us that perhaps we are not really who we think we are, that we can't keep doing the same things and expecting different results. In a culture that idolizes church growth and strategies that produce church growth, it is a dangerous line that we have to navigate. We cannot change just for the sake of change, and we cannot change beyond that which is faithful to the truth that has been revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ through this word that has been preserved for us. Our goal is not and can never be more numbers for the sake of more numbers or more numbers for the sake of feeling better about our own existence as Christians or as a church. But we also must be honest in our assessment of whether we are actively pursuing and fulfilling the Great Commission 
that has been placed on each and every one of our lives individually and on our life as a church corporately. Are we being disciples? Are we being disciples who make disciples? Are we being disciples who are going in order to make disciples? Are we being disciples who are going and making disciples of people both near and far to as many different kinds of people as the Lord gives us opportunity? Are we being disciples who are going and making disciples of all nations to the point of welcoming them into our community of faith through baptism? Are we being disciples who are going and making disciples of all nations and baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Jesus Christ has commanded us to be and do as disciples? And all of those things we can view from an individual perspective, but we should also view that from a corporate perspective, not just as individual Christians, but as an overall local church. Through the power and presence of Christ among us, are we accomplishing this great commission together? Looking at it objectively, can we say yes? Can we look at it subjectively and put some emotion and feeling and longing and hope and desire behind it? But if we do, does that really justify whatever our answer actually is? Just because we think our way of doing things is better or more faithful does not mean we ought to be doing it out on our own. The circumcision party that Peter is having to justify himself to was only really temporarily satisfied with this story that he gives in Acts chapter 11. This same party continued to be around in Acts chapter 15, necessitating the first church council, and they continued to be around even after that, especially all throughout the regions where Paul journeyed and planted churches. That's why he had to write the book of Galatians. He wouldn't have needed to write that if that weren't still a problem years and maybe decades later. An insistence on our way or the highway on non-essential issues is an insistence on disunity among the body of Christ. And disunity and factions among the body of Christ is seen by the outside world as unappealing and contrary to the message of peace and reconciliation that we seek to proclaim. We cannot be faithful messengers of reconciliation if we are not living lives of reconciliation. I was at a regional pastor's gathering this week, and we began by singing two songs. I had never heard the songs before, and I typically don't sing a song if I've never heard it before. I prefer to just listen to it and read the words and think about what it's saying and if there is truth and depth to it. I think there's actually some good application for just regular secular songs in that also, but I'm talking about, you know, praise and worship songs. And while... I found these two songs to be quite superficial and overly repetitive. And I struggled on a couple different levels because I was probably the only one in the room out of like 30-something people who wasn't singing. 
but I didn't want to join in just because everyone else was doing it. And then I thought, well, just because they're not the greatest of songs doesn't mean I still can't worship. Should I really let the superficiality and unnecessary repetitiveness of these songs keep me from singing? Should I let my preferences and convictions hold me back from the trite and frivolous nature of my educated, educated view of their style of worship? Sometimes I just wonder if the reason why I can't get past the disagreements I have with others is because I can't get over myself. When churches like that experience growth and are seeing people come to faith and have baptisms, I do wonder sometimes, what is this new faith they are professing and what depth of true worship are they being called to? But maybe I can at least recognize that God has gifted them with his spirit and his grace, and they are using those gifts to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. And if they are proclaiming the gospel and making disciples and baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded, then perhaps I should stop viewing them as wrong and insufficient. Because if God is moving among them and blessing them with gifts of the Spirit and fruit of the Spirit and disciples are being made among them, who am I to judge them? Too often in my life, I find myself in a mindset like that, what we have here in Acts chapter 11, like the circumcision party. I know that what I know is right, and you're going to be hard-pressed to convince me otherwise. I like what I do and how I do it, so I'm not going to stop doing it, and I'm going to look down on those who don't do it my way. Attitudes like this have got to be a factor for some non-Christians and why they won't darken the doors of a church. Mindsets like this have got to be a reason why there are so many Christians out there who refuse to darken the doors of a local fellowship of believers. Whether it's the mindset they themselves have or a mindset that's been forced down their throat by ungracious churchgoers or church leaders in their past, it is a problem, and it's a problem worth taking the time to examine. Luke records this entire story and repeats it and repeats it and repeats it. It's like three times in Acts chapter 10 and 11, and then again in Acts 15. We see it from Cornelius' view, and we see it from Peter's view, and we see it from the circumcision party's view, and we see it from the church's view. And in the midst of all that, we see it from God's view. God cares about the unity of his church. He cares about unity in the local church, and he cares about unity in the universal church. There are moments in time and moments in our lives when we see that God is moving around us or moving among us. And if we cannot get behind and celebrate those moves of God, we just might be found opposing God. We don't have to join each of those moves, but we cannot just be cynical of them or judgmental towards them or jealous of them. What's great about the story of Peter is that we can see his maturation. In the Gospels, he was rash and quick-tempered and just plain wrong in half of the conclusions that he came to. But in this story, we see how Peter has grown. He has allowed the truth of what Christ and the Spirit have shown him to lead him to the right response, to go from opposing God and get behind me, Satan, 
to understanding that sometimes he and others are prone to misread the tea leaves if they're not being careful. That we can easily make God into our own image. But God is not partial to us just because we figured out the truths of his word. God is simply showing his grace toward us and is opening our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and understand his grace and mercy toward us. Rebels and sinners in the midst of a twisted and crooked and dying generation. God has not called us out of darkness to be arrogant and proud. God has called us into the kingdom of his son so that we would shine as lights in this world. That he would shine through us as lights in this world. How can we shine if we are not unified? How can we shine if we are content to demand our own way? How can we shine if we are not obeying his command to make disciples? It's time for us to examine our existence as Christians and as a church and answer the tough questions. And all we can ask is that God gives us his grace and wisdom to know how to move forward so that he is honored and glorified. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for just sometimes a little bit of off-roading from the text and similar topics. God, I pray that you would help us to, to pause and consider, to think about what it is you are doing among us and how you desire to use us both now and moving forward. God, we need your spirit to speak to us, to show us, to make it clear to us what you want us to do. We don't want to just go through the motions that we think are right. We want to be used by you to be impactful for your kingdom, for your glory. And so help us to spend time in examination and assessment and considering how we can best, as individuals and as a church, honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.